God. Look at Job chapter 19. In verses 25 and 26. So Job, Job is the one whose life is just a mess. It was a mess. He lost all of his family. He had all kind of problems. And he was being attacked, saying, well, these problems are coming because you're a sinner. And he's like, I'm just basically going to trust God in this. And in verse 25, in his heart, he says of Job 19, I know my Redeemer's lives. And now listen to the verse, rest of the verse and the next verse after that. And think about Todd DeKrieger, whose body was just ravaged by typhoid malaria. It says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin, after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I know my Redeemer is real. And I know even if I die, even if somebody we love passes away, or somebody who's dedicated to the Lord is taken from this earth, He's going to see God because Jesus is going to come back here and stand upon the earth. Actually, today we're going to talk about the importance of not taking away the glory from Jesus because really he's everything. He's everything. We have to be very careful that we don't take some of what is deserved, the glory that he deserves for ourselves so you think I'm, I'm something. I know Todd wouldn't want you to say, what a great man. I know you'd want, he'd want you to say, I know my Redeemer lives. That's why I do this stuff. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. So before we start, let's just pray that the sermon would focus on Christ, not ourselves, and not what I'm going to say is uh, sentimentalism. We're prone to it in the church, and it's a deadly disease. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that as we open up your scriptures, that, Lord, we would exalt Christ above everything because he's our redeemer. He purchased us back. And he's going to stand upon this earth, and we're going to see him. With our very own eyes, we're going to see him. And man, when we see him, he's the one that deserves everything. All the accolades, all the glory. As Mary says, he deserves to be magnified, to be lifted up high and made large. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you, uh, this summer... If you happen to be traveling through Montana, which I know many of you probably will be, everybody goes to Montana in the summer, if you happen to be traveling through Montana, make sure you take a quick 30-mile drive to the east, up to the mountains, if you're in a great city of Butte. There's nestled high up in the Rocky Mountains in Butte, a 90-foot statue, a beautiful 90-foot statue of the Virgin Mary. It's called Our Lady of the Rockies. It is the third tallest statue in the United States, very comparable to the Statue of Liberty. Residents got the idea of building this statue from a man from Butte who prayed that his wife would be healed from cancer. He prayed to Mary, and sure enough, his wife was healed. It went into remission, so he felt this urge to make a five-foot statue of Mary in his front yard. Well, the neighbors heard about it, the community heard about it, they raised funds, and they made this 90-foot statue which now stands 8,000 feet above sea level looking over the city of Butte. I even have a picture of a school bus just to give you size ratios. It's huge. It's huge. I am very, as a, as a person growing up, I am very familiar with these kinds of tributes being paid to Mary. In fact, I have two grandmothers 
and many aunts who dedicated their lives to Mary. They dedicated their lives. My one grandmother prayed the rosary five times a day. One of my aunts traveled to Magador, Yugoslavia, where the sun shook because they saw Mary in the sky. She got holy water from there because she was crippled. She's in a wheelchair, so she got holy water from there thinking it would heal her, sadly, to no avail. I even went to a school that was dedicated to Mary called the University of Dayton in southern Ohio. They boast of having the largest Mary collection stored in the world in their Marian library. The University of Dayton website states, recognized as the world's largest and most comprehensive collection of printed materials on Mary, the Marian library aims to further study and research and to promote well-founded devotion to Mary. The library comprises a Marian collection theological treatises, books on shrines, sermon collections, anthology, and Marian poetry, and other works, and a complementary reference collection in scripture, patristic, systematic, and spiritual theology, history, religious art, and general bibliography, all focused on Mary. So you can say I'm very familiar with devotion to Mary. I can distinctly remember a table conversation. I was the youngest of six kids, and I was the youngest of all our cousins. We had a ton of cousins. And I always had to sit in the kids' table. I hated it. Did you ever have a parent's table up here? And then you have the kids' table, and the kids' table is where you throw the turkey at each other. The parents' table, they're talking and arguing about politics and theology. And I always wondered, what are they talking about over there? Why can't I be in the adult conversation, too? I remember sneaking over there and sitting on my dad's lap, and he was in a heated conversation with my grandmother. My grandmother said to my dad, Don, why don't you pray the rosary? I never see you praying a rosary, and I don't ever see you lighting votive candles to Mary at the church. Why don't you, Don? My dad was very blunt. My dad said, Ma, I only pray to Jesus. I don't see what Mary can do for me when Jesus already does everything. My, my grandmother got mad. Don! Don't ever say that again. Come on, Ma. Mary was just a person. Jesus is God. You should be ashamed of yourself, Don. I will never forget that conversation. And as a little kid, I didn't see why it was such a big deal. But the older I get, the more I study theology, I begin to see just how right my dad is, or was. I have discovered over time how Mary worship, and for that matter, any false worship of saints, of human heroes that you may have in life, and even of yourself. Believe it or not, many of us worship ourselves. Any of this kind of worship is nothing more than glory stealing. It's glory stealing. Human beings are so prone to taking that which is only reserved for God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit and giving it to lesser things, baser things. In our human fallenness, there's this lure. It's like, a, it's like a trap. It's like a snare to keep some of the glory for myself, to inflate the importance of regular human beings that I admire, even to the point where we carve 90-foot statues out of stone. And give people powers that only Jesus possesses. That only Jesus possesses. I once heard it, that the human heart is an idol factory. 
We are always exalting that which has no business even being exalted. And when we do that, as so many have done in the case of Mary, as so many do in the cases of their parents, even they do in cases of celebrities and athletes, like we attribute them as something different, special, better, holy, Ooh, it steals glory from God. And worse than that, it robs us of really having his life in our life and receiving his joy. I'll show you what I mean. The title of this is The Lore, and even I have the lunacy, which is kind of crazy, of thinking we can take any of his glory for ourselves. And I'll tell you what, it's the last thing the real Mary ever wanted to happen, ever. The real Mary. I'm talking about the one that really lived. And we'll see it. I want you to open up to Luke chapter 1, 39 to 56. This is known as the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. This actually means a song of praise. We're going to start in verse 39. We just got done with uh, Mary was visited by the angel. Elizabeth before her was visited by the angel Gabriel. And now Mary and Elizabeth are coming and they are rejoicing together, really. They are both overwhelmed with what God's doing in their life. So verse 39 says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. Geographically, she was living up in Nazareth. She went down to Judah, which is down by Jerusalem, is about a 70-mile walk, which took quite a while into the hill country. She entered the house of Zechariah. She greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. The section of Luke begins with a visit. And if you notice this visit in the first four or five verses, the whole atmosphere, the way that if you just read and try to imagine the atmosphere, it's just pregnant with joy. It's all joy. It's all excitement. It's overwhelming excitement. In this section, there is leaping, shouting, astonishment, excitement, and rejoicing. Songs to be sung. Babies who leap in the womb. It's joy. It's all joy. And there's good reason for this. These ladies, both of these ladies, have encountered the living God. 
They've encountered them. And because of their encounter, they know two things. They know what real joy is like, what it's really like, and they know its source, where you get real joy. Joy is always born out of the context of fallen reality. I'll say that again. Joy always is born or comes from the context of a fallen world, of a broken world. Here we have Elizabeth who was barren. She couldn't have a child. She was old, and now she's pregnant with a prophet of God. So in her brokenness, she's given an amazing gift. In the same way, Mary is poor, insignificant little girl who's to bear the Savior of the world. For them, probably it was too much believed, but with God, impossibility is a, a good probability. A great probability. It's not impossible. Out of the ashes, for both of these women, bloomed a flower. And that's where joy is born, out of the ashes. And the source of this joy is the Lord. He's the one who is the bringer, the maker of joy. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12 is the chapter on joy. It's beautiful how it describes it and where it comes from. And I believe it's also the pattern. If you, it's almost, it, it almost patterns this story we've read I, almost word for word to some degree. It begins in verse 1. It gives you the context of where joy comes from. It begins, it says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Okay, so, so in that day, you're going to give thanks. This thanks is, it's kind of like it's not, you are going to, it just will come, it will bubble forth out of you. Joy just comes out of you. Why? Because of the context. You were angry with me. God, you were angry with me. That's the context. That's the context of fallen reality. No man before God, nobody before God is innocent, nobody's deserving, and life is broken. We are bruised because we're all sinners. That's just the fact. However, he goes on to say, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. And instead of, really, instead of punishment, you've comforted me. That's overwhelming. When I know what I deserve because of sin, but yet God reaches out in mercy, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Have you ever felt that in your life? When you know you know your context is one of ashes because you have burned it to the ground by your decisions. And then all of a sudden, the gospel comes along and it says, yeah, but he died for you. And he wants to give you eternal life. You're, you're, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. In other words, it's understanding that you really don't get what you deserve because of God's mercy and so at the source of this goodness is verse 2. Where does this goodness come from? God. He's my salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, God, the NIV puts it like this, the Lord, the Lord, He's my strength. He's my salvation. So the source of this joy is God alone. God alone. Him only gives me joy. 
Now notice the rest of the chapter. It's all joy and glory with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known the deeds among the people. Proclaim what he's exalted. This is exactly what's going on in the Magnificat. Mary can't believe it. So she just gives, she just gives praises. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So the context is a fallen reality, an amazing, merciful God. That's where joy comes from. I want to give you glory and joy in a metaphor. I've, I got this from Jonathan Edwards, but I want you to picture reality. And this is, this is how you have to understand it. Because if you don't understand it this way, then you won't understand why glory stealing is so wicked. It's wretched, actually. Imagine... This metaphor, we are all lost in a desert, and the sand is swirling, and there's dust storms going on, and we are thirsty, we are malnutrition, and we're blind because the sand has been burning our eyes, and so we're groping, wandering around. And all of a sudden, one of us stumbles on this, this fountain of sweet water that's just bubbling and as I stumble, let's say I stumble upon it, I fall into it and I start wiping my eyes and I start drinking. And this water is not just good water, this water is life. And all of a sudden, I can see everything. And just vitality comes to my body, my muscles get strong, and I, there's this, I'm not going to die. But in this reality, I start looking around, I see everybody else, everybody else, is blind, wandering, and lost. What do I do? Do I just bask in this fountain saying, it's all mine, man. I'm so much better than everybody else. See what I did? Come on. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, I'm a debtor to all men. That's why I'm eager to preach the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so what he does is he, and I think you would, take that water and start bringing it to people, or at least grabbing them by the arms and bringing them there. But we would never take glory in saying, look how strong I am. Look how great I am. Keep everybody else blind and just think that I'm, I will lead you around. That's what glory stealing is. Where everything you've been given has been the grace and mercy of God, but yet we keep it for ourselves. Hiding people from the real source, the real fountain of life, Christ himself. If you take credit for your sight and health, you are stealing credit from the real source of joy. And if you don't tell people where you obtained it, you are hurting them. Mary gets this. Let me show you. Go back to the Magnificat. Go back to Luke 1. Mary understands where joy comes from, and where the source is. She begins in verse 46 by saying, My soul, that means everything in me, magnifies, that means glory, magnifies the Lord. Magnify, if you ever used a magnifying glass, it, it takes something that's small and I look through it, it becomes big. So what she's saying, through my life, I want to take your vision of God, and I want it to expand. I want it to get big. I want to glorify Him. Why? Because she goes on in verse 48 and 49. Um, he's my Savior. 
He's my Savior. And then she goes on and says, For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now all generations will call me blessed. So she considered herself blessed because of how he did the saving. And this is where the problem comes in. What does that word mean, blessed? This word has led to a host of what I would say differing interpretations. In some church traditions, the way this word is used is to attribute it to Mary's character, who she is. That's why they, some will call her the blessed Virgin Mary. She is seen to some people as some kind of lady that's a cut above, different. Listen to one Catholic apologist. If you look up the word blessed in the dictionary, it means holy, held in veneration, revered. God is telling us that Mary is holy and she should be venerated and revered. But the actual Greek word is completely different than this. The actual Greek word is this word right here. It's makarizo. One writer says about this word, it denotes clearly the observable benevolence or the observable kindness which God has bestowed upon someone, which God has given to someone. It is not a statement about a person's character as much as the benefit someone has received and they're observable. So this is not a statement about Mary's holiness, but rather about the grace Mary received. If you came to my house today, let's say you came to my house last night, and all my kids there, we were all... We were all sitting and talking. If you would have walked in there, you would have saw my two beautiful daughters. And then you would have said to me, man, Chris, you are blessed. You are not saying, Chris, you are something else. You are saying, wow, God really gave you gifts in those two daughters. However, if you saw my boys, you'd say, I'd really be praying for you today. But do you understand? It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what has been given to me. That's the same context of Mary. Exactly the same context. Mary even elaborates on this in verses 48 and 49. Listen, she says, He has looked on my humble estate. That means how low I was. And in verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. What she's saying, she is not taking credit for any of this. She's not assigning it to her character. She's saying, the reason I'm blessed because he has done great things for me. That's the point. Mary is not saying I deserve 90-foot statues made, rosary set, or people bowing down to me because of my blessedness, but rather because all he has done for me, I cannot, I cannot but point people to him and his goodness and his amazing mercy. She doesn't want to steal the glory. She wants people to go to the rightful source of it. God himself. In fact, throughout this Magnificat, if you were to study it, uh, there's seven different quotes from Psalms, which scholars describe, all of them are songs of declarative praise where God is always the subject of the praise. So she's quoted from like Psalm 25, 34, 103, where the attention goes to God's amazing work among us. Another writer says, Mary in this passage, if you'd look at it, if you look at it metaphorically, Mary is personifying God's love for Israel. Here was Israel in a humble state. God has now come to them to lift them up in the same way he came to Mary in a humble state to lift them up. And the same scholar goes on to say, and Israel's always been a metaphor of humanity where he's using Israel as an example of how much he loves the world. He wants to come to us in our lowest state so he can lift us up. 
This song is not written so we can marvel at Mary's greatness. It is about pointing us to God. So you could say this, she is not blessed for who she is, but rather she is blessed for who he is and what he's done for her. The same goes for us. Put your name in that. Chris is not blessed for who he is, but I am blessed for what God has done for me. So many preachers really steal the glory. This has nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with them. I can hear some people from my past getting very upset right now, and they would say, aren't you taking away from Mary? You seem to be not giving her credit at all, and guess what? I'm not. I'm not. Because in and of herself, compared to God, Mary is nothing. But last week you said she was blessed because she responded in faith the same way you and I can. However, compared to God, Mary's nothing. Do you understand that? Nobody compares to Jesus. Nobody. I, somehow we, we don't like comparing God to people. If you compare God to people, we are nothing. Do you understand how mighty Jesus is? He's amazing. Don't steal his glory. God says in Philippians, every, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Everybody. He's the only one. He's the only one that crawled up on a cross and allowed himself to be utterly despised, humiliated, spit upon, beat up, murdered for me. So he's the only one that gets my praise. Some people would say, well, what's wrong with stealing a little bit of his greatness for ourselves? What's wrong with gathering admirers for ourselves? Why not take credit for our accomplishments? What is so bad about being proud of who we are? Can I enjoy my glory for just a little bit? I would say be very careful for two reasons. Very careful. According to 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7, the only reason we have any gifts, talents, beauty, and greatness is because he gave them to us. Listen to what it says. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, listen to how Paul argues, if then you received it, meaning it was given to you, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That would be like the guy who drinks that sweet water in the desert, and he's acting puffed up, like, look at how I... Got my sight back. You kidding me? Doesn't the Bible call us saints, someone might say? Children and image bearers? Yes, but all of that has been given to us from above. All of that. Don't take credit for it. That's why John in 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. I can't believe that. Did you realize God has called me his child? He's putting all the attention on God's greatness, not mine. Glory stealing is dangerous. And according to the rest of Mary's song, God is extremely great. That's why he deserves the glory. When I steal his glory so you'll relish in my greatness, it robs him of his just deserts. In fact, glory stealing actually paints God to be less than who he really is. And that's called idolatry. That's idolatry. Scholars say as they studied Mary's song, she paints God in two metaphors. The first one is he's a mighty warrior. Look at verse 49. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Verse 51 says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts in their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So here comes God, and everybody who's lifted up, he's going to tear them down. Actually, God, when I, I brought up Job earlier, and God, Job had some questions about God. And God said, Job, I want to ask you some questions, if you think that much, you know that much about me. Who, uh, who made the earth? Who holds it on its foundations? Where's the wind stored? But then he asked this. He says, brace yourself like a man. He says, all right, you think you're God? I want you to show yourself powerful like him and bring every proud man low and lay him in the dust of death. Every proud man. So Job, go to, um, I'd like you to go to Egypt, tear up the Pharaoh. I'd like you to go to Rome, tear up Caesar. How about, how about any of us? Can we just, can you defeat ISIS on your own? Good luck. God can. He's mighty. The second thing, the second way he's portrayed is as the eternal judge. He's going to judge and give out salvation and give out judgment. One writer said, with salvation, there's always the inference of judgment. And so verse 50, and his mercies for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54, and he's helped to serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. So 54 and 55 is he's just. He gave a promise to his people, and he's going to fulfill that promise. He remembers because he's a judge that's just. I, I completely agree with both these assessments, but I, I think if you, if you look at him like that, it's kind of like he's away, he's far away. He's this judge that's standing back, and he's this warrior that's ready to come and trample. But in Mary's mind, I don't think she sees God as a transcendent God as much as a close and personal God. In the mind of Mary, God is a God that carries very, cares very much about her right now. Listen to the language, verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate, my humble estate. He's looked on me. And now people are going to call me blessed. Then verse 49, it says, he's mighty, but he's done great things for me. This is, he's done them for me. This God is very personal. Verse 50, his mercies for those who fear him. Verse 53, he pays back those people I can't. Really, she's saying it in the context of, I'm just this little girl. I can't take care of these men on the thrones, but God will take care of them. And verse 55 and 54 and 55, he does answer prayer. He's faithful, so I know he'll answer mine. In my mind, I was thinking about what would be a good example of what it would look like. I found this picture, in world, it's a World War II picture, about this soldier who found this little kitten and he's feeding it in the middle of the war. So here's this soldier, healthy, strong, fully armed, taking time in the midst of hostility to care about something that seems very insignificant. You, you see the heart of that guy. You don't just see his power, you see the heart of that guy. He cares about little things. I think that's exactly what Mary's saying about God. She's saying, the mighty one puts down kings, man, but you know what? He cares about little old me. He likes me. So in other words, you can say he is full of mercy. That means compassion for those who fear him. Or some, some translators would say those who love him. What's fascinating about this word fear, if you look in verse 50, it says, 
and his mercy for those who fear him, it does mean trembling in that regard. And as I was thinking about this, fear to me is essential. It's essential both in worship and stopping yourself from stealing his glory. It's the essential ingredient. If you don't really fear God, you won't see your need for mercy. If you don't see God as this holy, exalted one that is un he cannot look at sin, you won't, you won't care that you need mercy. If you don't fear God, you eventually will lose respect for his greatness. And you'll tend to view yourself better than you are. But for Mary, this idea of fear means to see God rightly, to respect him as he is, and to have a wholesome dread of displeasing him. To see God rightly, to respect him as he is, and have a wholesome dread of displeasing him. That's what she means. And those who view God like that, he shows compassion to them, mercy. For me personally, I'll just be honest, wrongly exalting the character of Mary, we lose the fear of how great Jesus is. I hate this argument. I hate it, and I've heard it often. And it's so silly, I can't even tell you. Jesus would never refuse a prayer from his mother. So go to his mom as if he can, she can manipulate her son. Number one, what it does is it paints this idea that Jesus isn't full of mercy. Mary's more merciful. That to me is, that's blasphemous. Jesus is the most compassionate, merciful God you've ever met in your life. He died for you. So you tell me he doesn't want to hear your prayer. He wants to hear every single one. But he wants you to go to him directly. For there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If Mary is blessed because she's special, it means nothing for me in my walk. But if Mary is just as weak, vulnerable, and needy as I am, and God reaches down to care for her, he can do the same thing for me. Now that, to me, is something to rejoice about. I want to end with a very personal story. And, and some of you might think this is, I'm sorry I'm making it so personal, but I, I think this whole veneration of Mary is very congruent with the way we view other people and even ourselves. We have to be very careful we don't steal joy because we're so prone to it and we're so sentimental. Meaning, to me, sentimentality is this, I'm appealing to your warm heart. So if I say, Mary is going to care for you, and I say it like that, it, somehow I, people are so easily taking that as truth. But we have to talk about reality as it is. My grandmother, I, her name's Caroline, my grandmother and my grandfather, they heard about this lady in the seat of Wisconsin that was speaking directly from Mary. Three times a day she'd speak visions from Mary. They packed up all their things from Perrysville, Ohio, and made a life for 10 years next to this Mary shrine. They sold everything to go live by this Mary shrine. This lady supposedly had visions of Mary. Her name was, believe it or not, Mary Ann, and she said she's the voice box for the Blessed Mother Virgin. My grandparents went to church five times a day. My grandparents, every time we went to visit them, they would pray the rosary hour by hour. My grandparents would listen to this lady's tape again and again and again because they venerated a lie. 
It was a supreme lie. They found out 10 years later that this lady was not just a fraud, she was wicked. It destroyed their life, just telling you. Their life crumbled after this. So to me, in a sense, what I, what I relate this to, this glory stealing is very personal. And I, glory stealing can ruin lives. When we exalt parents and treat them as if they are God, or parents want to be treated as God, where you don't disagree with me because I'm your mom and dad. You do everything I say. Oh my goodness, you got to be careful. Oh, you got to be careful. When we exalt athletes or celebrities and we just think they're the greatest thing that ever hit the earth, got to be careful. To me, even there is a point to where pastors steal so much glory, like, uh, I'm a man. There's also, to me, a danger in charismatic circles where I heard, I got a word of knowledge from on high, and because I have a word of knowledge, I'm a little bit more special than you. So you need to do what I say. That's dangerous. Actually, the word of God has been given to us so everybody's on equal terms to receive the invitation from God. Nobody's exalted over another. God is no respecter of persons. And then I think we do this with ourselves. We do this with ourselves. We really think highly of ourselves, so highly that I think we want everybody else to see how great we are. What I am amazed about Mary is she said twice, I'm humble. Her meaning by that word is, I am like the dirt. I'm dust. He's the one that's holy. Humility is the most beautiful gift that anybody can get where they really see themselves rightly and they see God who he is. Be very careful that this last thing, don't ever take what's not yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Um, we thank you for the example of, of Mary, honestly. We thank you, God, that she pointed people to you. And because of that, she knew where the true source of joy was. She knew that in you, in your mercy, and in your compassion, in your grace, we receive real life. We receive the Holy Spirit who gives us that joy. Help us, God, never to steal it. Help us not give it to anybody else, not a pastor, not a parent, not an athlete, and not even a saint, but that we give it to one person, that's Christ. Help us, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.